Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. About the time of this recording are the times that students are going back to college campuses, and there seems to be sort of a typical narrative that we embrace of students leaving high school or wherever they're coming from, going to a new college campus and embracing all sorts of new opportunities to grow intellectually and socially. However, we also know that such transitions are fraught with challenges for many students. Not all students reach a university campus and immediately discover new supportive connections. My guest today is Dr. Varun Sony, Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. Dr. Sony has received degrees from multiple universities, including his PhD from the University of Cape Town. In addition to being Dean, Dr. Sony is a university fellow for the USC Annenberg Center for Public Diplomacy and an adjunct professor in the USC School of Religion. Dr. Sony recently published an op-ed in the LA Times titled, There's a Loneliness Crisis on College Campuses. A link to that op-ed is accompanying the text of this podcast. Varun, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You know, one of the things when I read your op-ed that immediately jumped out to me is that what you were writing about was something that as a teacher and a dean, I could easily relate to um, that sort of relates to what I said in the opening, that we have this I guess, sort of myth about students coming to college and having all sorts of um, new friendships open up. That does happen for some. It doesn't happen for all. In your essay um, that you wrote in the LA Times, you noted that your conversations with USC students, and this was very poignant for me, changed over the course of time from questions of how should I live to questions of why should I live. can you talk about sort of the differences in those questions and how you've noticed that being a shift in the dialogue that you have with students on your campus? Sure. Um, so when I got to USC, it was 2008. Um, as Dean of Religious Life, I'm essentially the university's chaplain. I oversee all of our chaplains. We have over 50 chaplains representing every faith tradition in the wor- you know in the world, including a humanist chaplain for atheist students uh, and agnostic students. Um, and I oversee over 90 student religious groups, which is probably the most number of student religious groups on any American campus. Um, and in that work, I get to do the intimate work of pastoral care and spiritual counseling, the confidential work of being with students as they go through times of triumph and tragedy, uh, to walk alongside them in their journey um, as students, um, and to really, in some ways, get a glimpse of the soul of the university through the students who I work with in that capacity. When I got to the university in 2008, the millennials were on campus, and um, I had conversations with my students um, that reflected and, in some ways, embodied the kinds of conversations that I used to have with my university chaplain when I went to college. Those were the kinds of conversations that made me want to be the dean of religious life at USC. And those conversations were about meaning and hope and gratitude and joy and connection and community and the future. Our millennial students were really optimistic about the future. Um, They uh, would constantly be talking about um, the the possibilities that uh, lie ahead of them, and that brought them a lot of joy and excitement. My conversations were about um, how to live an extraordinary life. How do you translate values into action? You know, how do you cultivate joy and gratitude? Uh, What does it mean to be human? What is the nature of God? These are the kinds of conversations that um, essentially, I think, reflect the ultimate questions that we all struggle with as human beings. Who am I? What does my life mean? Et cetera. Um, Those were joyful, optimistic conversations for the most part. About five years ago, I began to notice a devastating downward trend in the kinds of conversations I was happening. And as I wrote in my article, instead of asking me, why sh- how should I live? Students started to ask me, why should I live? Those conversations went from hope to hopelessness, 
from meaning to meaninglessness. And I began to notice that it was around the same time the millennials were leaving and their younger brothers and sisters, the post-millennials, Generation Z, were arriving. And so it almost seemed like it reflected a generational trend in real time. At first, I thought these conversations only reflected the fact that I was well, you know, I was better known on campus, mm-hmm. um, that after five years, students were finally getting to me in a way that they weren't before, that I was finally getting vulnerable students because I had a presence and I was being referred by other students. But when I started talking to counselors and chaplains around the country, I began to realize that what I saw in USC was USC's campus was a snapshot of national higher education. And about five years ago, I started talking about a full-blown mental health crisis uh, in American higher education. I've seen that get worse every year. Every year, I encounter more stress, anxiety, and suicidal ideation on campus. Mm-hmm. And we know nationally that almost 70% of our students feel overwhelmed by anxiety. 30% are wrestling with some kind of mental health challenge. And 10% of our students nationally have had thoughts of suicide over the last year. So uh, the numbers, the data sort of reflect my experience as well. And I believe that this is the greatest challenge in American higher education today, the mental and spiritual and emotional health and well-being, not just of our students, but of our campus communities. Yes, my friend, I I completely agree with you. And there needs to be more conversation about this because what you're describing at USC, um, you're absolutely right, is replicated on every college campus that I'm aware of. I mean, we see see this at Ohio University, a university completely different in many ways from USC, obviously, but it's the same issues. Um, So, you know, I really commend you for bringing this more to the forefront of attention. In your article, you explicitly sort of link this um, sort of existential crisis for these students um, to the fact that they're lonely. And, you know, the irony of this is that we also know that this is uh, the most connected generation of students that we've had on college campuses um, because of their connection to mobile devices and, and broadband technology as they've, you know, grown up. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, you're right. In the age of connection, our students feel more and more disconnected. They're disconnected from themselves, from each other, and from their campus. And uh, what I have noticed is that underlying a lot of stress, anxiety, and depression is this deep and enduring sense of loneliness. Um, I never got the question in my first five years that uh, at USC that I get every day, which is, how do I make friends? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of shocked me. Students are on a campus with 50,000 students their age, representing 140 countries in all 50 states. And yet they're asking me, you know, the chaplain on campus, how to make friends when those opportunities are are all around them. So I do believe that um, some of this loneliness, and it's not just me, the recent Cigna study said that the loneliest generation in the United States right now are not the oldest. We always have, we've always known that loneliness has a as a public health issue as well, that mm-hmm. loneliness can lead to early death amongst an aging population. But for the first time, uh, we now know that the loneliest population in the United States are post-millennials, and specifically 18 to 22-year-olds who are our undergraduate students. Um, so the data seems to suggest what I also have seen on campus, which is that students feel like everyone has friends but them. They're curating their real, they're, they're um, comparing their real lives to the curated, idealized Instagram lives of others. They figure mm-hmm. they, they think that they're the only ones who haven't figured it out and everyone else has. They have this sense of being an imposter. And this is only exacerbated by the fact that they might have been a valedictorian and they're coming to a class filled with valedictorians. They might have been the best athlete mm-hmm. and maybe they don't make the team. They might have been the best musician and they're not anymore. Um, they might not get into a fraternity, they might get their first B, they might not get their internship or their job, the girl or the guy might not reciprocate their affection. All those are part of a normal college experience, but yet they exacerbate the anxiety and stress students already feel in a social media world. I know we call it social media, 
I see it as antisocial because <laughs> students spend a lot of time on their devices, uh, and that's a solitary activity. Uh, we even know this starts in high school. High school kids aren't going out as much. They're not dating as much. They're not driving as much. They're sitting at home texting each other um, by themselves. And so, uh, you know, for 50,000 years, human beings have communicated with their tongues, and we're raising a generation to communicate with their thumbs. And I'm not sure we understand what kind of impact that has uh, on our students, um, but I have no doubt that the mental and spiritual health crisis on our campus that's reflected in Generation Z is in some way related to the fact that they are our first fully digital native generation. Yeah, it, it bears worth mentioning, too, that your colleagues in the USC Annenberg School for Communication, Center for Communication does outstanding research um, looking at this very issue. Um, it's it, and, and a great resource for listeners of the podcast if they want to learn more about that. I, I thought it was really interesting in your article, and you, you kind of touched on this already, that, you know, sort of the obvious explanation potentially for this loneliness is, as you suggest, the um, the um, in, imprecise under, understandings of self because of social media. I, I, I totally buy that explanation. But you also raise other psychological stress points for students that uh, that you hypothesize could be a part of this loneliness cycle and stress cycle. Could you expand uh, for the listeners on what some of those are from your perspective? Sure. I would say there are at least three or four other um, things happening that are unique to this generation. I think it's a convergence of these trends that have created our current reality. It's the intersection of these trends um, that, quite frankly, other generations haven't had to struggle with. So social media is one. The other is the loss of religion. Uh, 45 to 50 percent of my first year students are not formally affiliated with religion compared to 20 percent of the American population, compared to 2 percent of the American population in 1950. So just in two generations, we've seen this dramatic rise of non-affiliation from 2 percent to almost 50 percent for young people. And uh, I always tell my students, it's okay if you want to walk away from religion. But and if you want to walk away from God, but don't walk away from the things that make you human. And mm -hmm. what religion has historically provided is community, ritual, a sense of belonging, uh, the idea that there's something greater than yourself, a sense of service to others. Those are the things that make us human. And when you walk away from religion, what are you replacing that with? I, I also think that uh, tuition causes a great deal of stress. USC is $75,000 a year uh, uh, for first-year students, room and board included. That means that students are not thinking in a traditional liberal arts model, which was, who am I? What does my life mean? How do I become a global citizen? How do I think? How do I learn? How do I be? Instead, it's what's the job that will get me the degree that will pay down my debt? And so what I've seen on my campus is a shift from a liberal arts model to a pre-professional one, where I used to be a mentor, and now I think students see me more as a service provider. Who, you know, uh, it's Everything's become more transactional as opposed to transformative. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them because I didn't I could study religion without worrying about the debt or the job in a way that our students don't feel like they can. I think that causes a great deal of stress, too. Uh, and another issue is the rise of the active shooter. And, and almost every week in the United States, there's an active shooter on some campus, whether it's elementary, high school, college, etc. When I was growing up, I always saw the university and the university campus as a location of transformation, of creative expression, of inspiration, of deep learning. I was so excited to be on a university campus. My, my mother worked on one, and I think at a young age, I just I became enthralled with that idea, and I, quite frankly, have never left. Our students don't see our physical campus that way. This is a generation of students that were raised with active shooter drills. You know, mm -hmm. They see our campus as a potential location of violence and xenophobia and threatening behavior. Um, and so 
even the act of being on campus can be a stress, a trigger. Uh, it could cause some amount of PTSD based on all the active shooter training that they've been through. And once again, that's not something previous generations have struggled with. So I do think there is a convergence of factors, uh, social media being one of them, but there are other factors too that are unique to this generation that I see uh, as part of the cause of the anxiety. You know, as, as I hear you talking about that, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is there also a reason uh, that could be attributed to this loneliness that that could stem from the polarization of discourse that surrounds not just these students, but really everybody now? I mean, I guess in a simple sense, is it harder to make friends because I'm I'm, I'm scared that as I meet someone new, I'm going to say something that will be a conflict point? You know, whether it's about race, class, yeah, or... Yeah, that's right. I, th I think there's something in the zeitgeist here. Um, my, my sense is that uh, I was talking to Mayor Eric Garcetti about this. I said, listen, the crisis of my campus is loneliness and belonging. And he said, the crisis of our country is loneliness and belonging. <laughs> and so I think there's something out in the world, too. Uh, you know, we're impacted by everything that happens in the world. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a hurricane, if there's a fire, if there's a flood, if there's a mass shooting, if there's an attack on a house of worship, we're impacted. You know, we're impacted by federal legislation. We're impacted by DACA. We're impacted by travel ban. We're impacted by, you know, uh, 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 student funding um, uh, reductions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All those things directly impact us too. So, yes, we're in the age of anxiety and outrage. Um, what happens in the world happens on campus. I think students often feel polarized in the way that our culture feels polarized, where I even engage at all if if there's no consensus and maybe it's easier to disengage and we start we we've kind of seen that even politically that students have become uh dissatisfied with the current political system and instead of saying um we're going to re-engage and reimagine it um, and redefine it make it ours they're just saying why even get engaged at all and so i mm -hmm. think you're right there's more out there too and it's all connected in some way or another. And that impacts us. It just does, That doesn't just impact students. That impacts faculty, staff, Absolutely. alums, parents. It impacts the caregivers on campus. It impacts the entire university community. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think we're all trying to figure it out. You know, um, a, a few minutes earlier, you were talking about uh, these stressors as they relate to things like the imposter phenomenon. I thought that was interesting because in my background in, in education research, we think a lot about the imposter phenomenon as being a signal of academic um, distress for a student that, that, you know, stems from stress related to the academics. I thought it's really interesting that you're talking about it, not just in the academic realm, but also the social realm, which um, is, is sort of new, you know, in the way that we think about students now, about those stressors bleeding back and forth between those, and they clearly do. How do you see the issue of loneliness as you think about it? Um, and how it manifests from some of these larger issues intersecting with the academic experiences of students? And I think the obvious answer is it could put them in academic distress because of that. But are there other ways that you're seeing that intersection sort of uh, come, come to fruition for students in, in either positive or negative ways? Yeah, so you're, you're right. When a student is in crisis, the whole student is in crisis. So if the student is suffering from extreme alienation or loneliness, that has a physical health impact. We know that loneliness, extreme loneliness, it, it has the physical health impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That has an academic impact. If you're not thriving in your life, it's hard to flourish in the classroom. That has an emotional impact on social relationships. That has uh, an impact spiritually in terms of what our chaplains work with. So we're trying to support the whole student, uh, where however we can, because we realize that that crisis is a whole person crisis. 
Um, the good news here is that we are also trying to think about how we can be part of the solution. Uh, the great thing about working at a research university is we have experts in so many fields who are doing research that can be translated into something helpful for our students. And we have students on campus who are so self-aware of the challenges that they also want to be part of the solution. So we've developed a, a number of different interventions, both with students and with faculty, that help us try to get upstream. And that's really where my thinking has gone. We can triage crisis uh, downstream, and that's historically what universities do. When someone's in crisis, you triage and you move on. But, um, but the crises have gotten too great downstream. And if we're not operating midstream and upstream, where we're moving people away from a path uh, where, uh, where they might um, end up in crisis, or we're upstream and we're making sure people don't get in the water to begin with, then we can hopefully start to change the culture. And if we're working more upstream, then maybe we can mitigate the flow of crisis and threat downstream. That's the model of a new office that I've built on campus called the Office of Campus Wellness and Crisis Intervention, that we have mm -hmm. to work the entire stream. And that's how you sort of shape culture. And so we've been asking ourselves, what's the fluoride in the water? What's the mm -hmm. nutrient in the soil? What do we do for all students to empower them to be proactive participants in their own well-being, as opposed to just students who are in crisis when they're already in crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And it's often hard to argue for a preventative resource. People usually operate in a responsive way to responding to things instead of trying to be proactive. But I don't feel as though we can afford to just be downstream and reactive anymore. We also have to be upstream and proactive. So in addition to that, you know, that proactive approach, um, which I, you know, you can't help but not agree. I mean, any other public health concern, we would try to be proactive in any way possible. Um, and this is no different than that. In addition to that proactive approach, are there, um, are there, you know, you mentioned how can the student be a part of that solution, you know, from sort of an appreciative inquiry standpoint, how are you all seeing the positive as attributes that the students do have with them be a part of the solution of them not being lonely and not uh, having debilitated, uh, you know, stressors that confront them on a daily basis. Yeah, that's great. So uh, several years ago, our undergraduate student government leaders came to us and they, you know, what we noticed is that some of the most popular classes at some of the best universities in the country are classes on now emotional intelligence and um, positive psychology. The most popular class in the history of Harvard, 380 year history of Harvard, is a class called positive psychology. The most popular class right now at Yale University is a class called the science of happiness. The most popular class at Stanford is a class called design your life, which is how do you live a meaningful life? So what we're seeing is that uh, if we bring some of these conversations into a curricular context, we legitimize them in a particular way. And we convene people uh, to have them in a way that they might not have them outside the classroom. So several years ago, we started working with undergraduate student government leaders, and we're now piloting a class called Thrive, which we built with students, which was the student's way of saying, we wish we had these insights, techniques, practices, and resources on our way in. And on our way out as a gift to new students, we wanna give them what we wish we had had. Hmm. And so we've been piloting this class, this is our second year, uh, it focuses on emotional intelligence, self-care, well-being, identity, diversity, equity, uh, sleep and nutrition, and most importantly, healthy relationship building. The other thing we did is we launched a mindfulness initiative. We used the research of uh, our own professors on our medical school campus who have been thinking about mindfulness not as a spiritual practice but as a health intervention, especially around issues of insomnia and stress and depression and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And we know from the data of the last 20 years that mindfulness is a, a evidence-based, data-driven um, best practice now for uh, workplace happiness and stress reduction, et cetera. So about five years ago, I launched Mindful USE. 
And I was shocked at the reaction. Um, we're now the largest mindfulness initiative in terms of um, how many people we train probably in American higher education. Last year, we trained 7,000 people on our campus in mindfulness practices through uh, free classes and app and online program, workshops, drop-in groups, and students are leading it. They have mindfulness sessions that they're running now. We train them and they go to the dorms and they go to their groups and they become ambassadors of mindfulness too. So that has been really encouraging. Uh, when I put up classes, I have hundreds of people on the waiting list. My most popular class is a class called um, uh, Mindful Self-Compassion. Who would have known? And <laughs> students have sort of never really been told that they can be compassionate to the to themselves. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of revelatory. The other thing we've done is we brought on a director of belonging. We feel like the crisis is belonging, and we want to name it. And in that role, she works with students. She teaches a friendship class. She um, brings people together over big conversations. And she works with a new student group we have on campus called Novus. Novus started with students who study neuroscience with uh, in our great Brain and Creativity Institute with uh, Antonio and Hanna Damasio, who are like some of the most brilliant neuroscientists in the world. Um, to translate what they've learned neuroscientifically into social and emotional opportunities for students to engage. And so we have student leaders who are very much on the front lines of trying to combat loneliness on campus by explicitly going out and reaching out to other students. When we started our friendship class, I thought that it would be the lonely students. And what we found was that half of the students were lonely and the other half were student leaders who wanted to be a solution to that. Hmm. So that's the loneliness crisis is what keeps me up, but the student self-awareness and desire to support each other is what gets me up in the morning. So you have a specific job and a specific calling related to your students at USC, but you know there's, uh, there's uh, students from across the country that have the potential to listen to this podcast. So what would you advise a student, um, you know, on a different college campus right now that, you know, hasn't, hasn't been able to build this proactive infrastructure that you have yet? What do you say to that student if they're sitting there and they know that part of what you're saying resonates with them? Um, what can they do for themselves? I would say the first thing is you're not alone. Even if you're feeling lonely, you're not alone in that loneliness. Um, every student feels like they're the only one going through this. Um, but uh, every time I have a student in my office who says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling to make friends, I tell them, you're the fifth person this week who's coming to tell me that. And people might wear masks well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they feel. And students somehow feel better when they know they're not alone in their loneliness. So this is a crisis. No one is alone in it. Um, and um, uh, other people are struggling the same way. You don't need 500 or 1,000 friends online. You just need three friends in real life who have your back. And I think that's where students should focus. They should focus on people who really have their back, who know who they are, who will be there for them under any circumstance. Um, those are the kinds of relationships that make us feel human, make us feel like we have a tribe, and allow us to flourish and thrive in our lives. If people are feeling lonely, they should know others are. And so just having a conversation or smiling or introducing yourself goes a long way towards making that human connection. Students almost feel like they need permission now to talk to each other. We just built this stunning new $800 million dorm, 2,200 beds, gorgeous new dining hall, all built with an architecture to bring students together. Even though the architecture is built to bring students together, in some ways the culture keeps them apart. And a freshman said to me, can we have a table in the dining hall where students talk to each other? I'm like, isn't that the whole dining hall? It's like, have you been to the dining hall recently? <laughs> students are by themselves on their phone. No one has permission to talk to each other. His dream was like a table where, which is tech-free, where student ambassadors facilitate conversations. The whole thing seemed really uh, like a lot of work for something that should be fairly organic, but I understand the impulse when that's the environment. So I think, you know, 
students should feel like they have permission to talk to each other. People will appreciate it if you go up and introduce yourself or smile at a stranger. Um, those are the kinds of connections that lead to the kinds of relationships that will make you flourish. And we know that when people are at the end of their lives and they're looking back on their lives, the thing that they feel was most important in them leading a life worth living isn't the things that American society or even universities tell students. It's not salaries. It's not celebrity. It's not degree. It's not grades. It's not education. It's not work. It's how deep and enduring are your loving relationships. And there's no better time in a student's life than 18 to 26 when they can meet people from all over the world to develop those kinds of relationships. On their campus, students will find their future spouses, business partners, best friends, peers, collaborators. But it takes a little bit of courage and bravery to sort of begin that conversation. So Varun, you, uh, your knowledge, expertise, and certainly your voice is, is a critical part of what needs to be a national conversation. So I just want to thank you for you know, the work that you're doing at USC and hope that many other institutions and faculty and administrators can learn from what you're doing because we have to find better solutions to the status quo. I really appreciate you having me and having this conversation. I think this is the way we begin to legitimize it. What I noticed is with the LA Times article, on loneliness, I, I've never written anything that got that kind of response. And so many people who work in higher education were saying, this is what we see too. So it's not just, I think what you're seeing, it's not just what I'm seeing. When we talk to our colleagues around the country, this is what they're all seeing. So I think you're right. The time is now to think collectively about how we can translate all the best practices, wisdom, and research of our university community and put that into the service of our students' well-being. Very good. And if you're interested in reading Varun's op-ed in the LA Times, the title of it, There's a Loneliness Crisis on College Campuses, just look at the text accompanying the podcast and you'll see a hyperlink back to that LA Times article. It's a great read and will um, be great to go along with listening to um, his narrative uh, in this podcast. Uh, So Varun, thank you for being a guest on the program. We hope to have you back to hear how your work at USC is going uh, and to hear success stories about that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through most popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening.